0: Hello Mage fans and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. Today we are bringing you a two-for-one special on Mage the Dark Ages. We are going to wrap up our series of episodes in Tomes of Magic on Dark Ages Mage books. Today we are looking at Rite of Princes and Darkening Sky. These books were written for all of the Dark Ages game lines of World of Darkness. And so there's some mage content in them and also some content for other games. So we thought, why don't we just double up here, give you some value for your listening minute and cover the mage material from both of these books. So as Winston Churchill once said, when going through the Dark Ages, keep going. I I might have that wrong, but anyways, you get the idea. So before we get into it, Terry, are there any
1: announcements? My only announcement is the fact that I did not realize that Rite of Princes was the companion volume to Spoils of War, which is another book that covers the four things and also covers things like mass combat. But I thumbed through that and I'm like, nope. So so there are theoretically more things that in some way mention Mage, but it didn't really pass that threshold to be like, do I want to drag a father with several children and a spouse and many things to do and occupy their only free Saturday in the month to talk about mass combat rules in the 13th century? No think I'm good. So we actually have a conversation with Jacob Klunder, who is one of the authors for that, where we will be going over that, discussing kind of the mage specific stuff. We may also talk about Dark Ages Fae. So there may be a little bit more Dark Ages in the pipeline. Yeah, I, w- I noticed that
0: it, it did mention that, that book in the beginning of Rite of Princes. And I, I took a quick look. It's like, I just don't think Tomes of Magic really needs to cover this, but I'm, I'm glad our podcast is covering it in another way. Yeah. And that's the only announcement I have. Well, we are starting off today with the first of these two books, Rite of Princes, which came out in 2003. There were three authors, one of whom was Stephen Michael DePesa, well known to Mage fans for his contributions to Revised Edition and other parts of Mage for World of Darkness. Clocks in at 125 pages. And Terry, can you start us off with a walkthrough?
1: I will be glad to. So, the thing that I always forget when dealing with books that involve vampires in any way is the fact that the prelude fiction is probably actually going to involve things happening and that these characters are probably established with long backstories. And wouldn't you know, when I went to the White Wolf wiki pages, like, here are the five characters from the prelude, here's the 11 other books that they're in, here's all their character sheets, and I'm like, darn you, vampire fans! It involves an argument between two vampires about what to do with some prisoners after witnessing a bunch of people being hanged and or decapitated. One is killed while an ambassador is talking. We get a peek into how vampires view things, seeing mortal as fickle and quick-changing. The set of vampires recognizes that some sort of peace may make sense, and one of them is held kind of prisonery-ish. One person is held hostage, but we learn that the, f- the real Golconda are the friends we make along the way. Seemingly nothing happened otherwise except for vampires talked about things. Do you have any thoughts about the prelude fiction, Adam? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I kind of assumed we would be reading about the vampires since they are quite popular to World of Darkness fans. And although it did focus on the vampires and didn't mention mages, it did a good job of showing what the book was about. And that is taking a step back to look at the big picture and long-term goals rather than short-term goals. Some vampires grab one of their enemies and one of them is saying, hey, we got our enemies right here. He's tied up. Let's let's end him. And they're like, no, wait, there's a bigger picture here. We can use him to accomplish some long-term goals. And he's not really our number one enemy me he's just an annoying guy so why don't we use him instead of lose him and it's like oh okay yeah we can take a step back and think about long-term goals so it fit for this book
1: i i thought it worked well moving on to the introduction we indicate that dark ages vampire introduced pooling backgrounds and there needs to be systems and descriptions to deal with five players just potentially having up to a hundred character creation points to put into a background and then it's like mages like the Bittini and Hermetics tend to be in charge. I'm like, oh, good to know. We get the idea of domain, D-E-M-E-S-N-E, which covers kind of an area of control which can translate into a domain, D-O-M-A-I-N. If I need to use both in the same sentence, I may refer to the former as Demesni and just kind of annoy everyone. So these are different in that You also have domain in the vampire sense, which is the area where you can freely feed, which is different from herd, which is the people you can freely feed from, and they may or may not overlap. So my questions going into this book is going to be, does it give me an actual system that kind of makes sense? Do we get an explanation of what society and power light it looks like in this era? And do we get an idea of how the politics work? And those were kind of the questions I feel the introduction set up and we'll see if the book delivered on those. Do you have any thoughts on the intro, Adam? I also had to make that difference
0: in my mind while reading between domain and this other word, which I, I was guessing was pronounced dem demain. I think it comes from French, but yeah, demain is like the the overall word for everybody's kind of land. Uh, mages get together and have chantries, and vampires have domains. Inquisitors have chapter houses. Werewolves have hunting grounds, which is kind of annoying because the noblemen also have hunting grounds, but but they're different because. Well, actually, you hunt in both of them. Anyways, they're, they're somehow they're different. But, <laughs> but the book is, look, when you pool your backgrounds, you get a different game, and we're going to describe how that game is different and make it interesting to you. And it's like, okay, I want to see, does it deliver on that promise? Because
1: that promise appeals to me. Yeah, it's important to note that domain comes from the French domaine, whereas demain comes from the French demain via Middle English. So if that's not clear as mud, Or as I used to say as a child, a long distance phone call from Ozzy Osbourne. I don't know what'll make it clear. (laughs) Well, this is the Middle Ages. There was mud all over everything. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) The dank ages. (laughs) So moving into chapter one, it is entitled The King's Domain. It starts off. Feudalism as a form of government requires a kind of reciprocal web of rulership and service. The basis of feudalism is resource management and making sure that the land is productive. You carve up the world into slivers, which allows you to figure out who is allowed to command what. Theoretically, all land is the monarchs who hands it out to nobles, who then hands it out to farmhands and such. The peasants work the land in exchange for protection, and that relationship tends to be quite exploitative feudalism produces a highly stratified society that is a little more fluid than we give it credit for a modern legal system is yet to be worked out and concepts like freedom <laughs> have not yet quite been enumerated anyone in this era can be laid low by a bad turn of events the nobles generally have generally more space to fall but commoners kind of have more variety if you're a simple turd farmer and you lose your turd farm there's only so far you can fall i will note that if you lose your third farm you're probably going to die all the while the church is the second largest landholder and until recently was kind of in control of learning. We then get some more information on what dwellings are like. Most people live in the country rather than a city, living in a village organized around maximizing agricultural production and protection. Villages are going to be around uh, 100 people and cluster around services such as trades places or a church. Larger villages can be up to 300. A lord controls a large area and grants some of it to a vassal who controls a fief. The vassal promises service in exchange for usage of the land. The bits of a fief are called a manor. A village is considered to be part of a manor and the peasants are the ones responsible for making it productive. Each manor has an owner and rarely does the owner live there unless it's a lesser noble like a knight. Otherwise, if the landlord is absent, a steward or seneschal will oversee it. And much in the period is written about how to do this. A seneschal may be a knight who gets their own property or a clerk who instead is getting paid for operating the land via the church. A bailiff acts as a law enforcement officer as well as attends to the business of the manor and is a link to the lord the bailiff is responsible for physical security and draws a salary and may have a number of other perks the bailiff has a full staff but the head of this is the reeve which is often the most prosperous person in the village the reeve may oversee agricultural sales as well as planting and in exchange doesn't need to do the normal labor share required of a villager to the lord in recompense for being able to use a portion of the land they may also receive grazing rights or special pay around holidays. Below the reeve is the rest of the Valaines, who own property or at least receive an exchange for work and who are subject to the tyranny of their lord. They can get quite comfortable, though not as much as their lord, obviously. The next largest unit we have really are cities. Under the Romans, the town was built around a legion that was the source of power for law and commerce. In the dark medieval, it is built around a church generally. Previous few centuries have seen advancements in agriculture and the reemergence of previous trades like silversmithing, which is creating enough of an abundance for commerce to return. This has caused the rise of the commune, which is, a association of all business people in an area. Uh, moving to a city moves you outside the main feudal manor lord arrangement and the ability to close down commerce and close ranks prevents lords from trying to take over a city if they have a functioning commune. These freedoms are documented in a charter which outlines who owes who to what and what the town needs to pay to the manor. Citizens in a town are now known as Burgers instead of villeins. Everyone in town likely is a merchant or a craftsperson, so their houses and workshops tend to be the same place and serve as both a trading house workshop as well as home. Surnames are emerging during this time and commonly identify who you are or what you do. Trade is controlled frequently by guilds, which determine the regulation of wares, as well as doing things like checking scales and making sure that prices are maintained. Clothing and cloth is the most important guild or set of guilds, And after cloth and the cloth trade, the next most important thing tends to be real estate, like renting and owning townhouses or a block of buildings. Coins are questionable in this time, and the denier penny is the most common currency. Gold is not very common, and paper money is starting to emerge, as well as exchanging notes of credit as a kind of basic banking. Commerce revolves around moneylenders who oversee this currency exchange and also will act as pawnbrokers. Pawnbrokers lend money to nobles who, if not paid back, will sue to receive it, which is one of the rare cases where the social hierarchy is inverted. Charging interest is considered unchristian, so this is a trade dominated generally by Jewish people. We get a little bit of information on gender roles that women are slightly below men, but this is partially because most people really have no rights or rank at all during harvest season, they tend to earn the same wage as men, but they are expected to do different tasks. Women can own property, but once married or subservient to their husbands, they may be forced to remarry if their husband dies by their lord and they only receive a portion of the estate. Uh, Wealthy women do generally have somewhat higher status. Highborn women are educated and learn to read and write to take care of the estate in the absence of their husband. They eventually become the core of a new middle class of burghers that will emerge over the ensuing centuries. Women will often do the same type of work as their husband and will carry on a trade after their husband's death. They may join a guild but may not hold rank in it and are often expected to pass on their trade to their children. Then we get some information on the supernaturals. Vampires, we find out that The Reconquista, the Crusades, and the various wars have ripped open holes in the social fabric that vampires are attempting to take advantage of. We get the idea of something called an anchor background, which is the background which is going to be the justification for a group of player characters being together, or at least a group knowing each other this could be allies contact domain and helps explain why a group is together we then get some information specifically on mages it mentions that the dark medieval has been rough on mages and it says that whole fellowships have disappeared really give me five so (laughs) that would have been fun That would have been great. Yeah. The Bettini are kind of uneasy lords and landowners. They're slowly being forced from the European continent that they often ally around a mentor who may represent a kutub, or they may all share servants as part of a household. The messianic voices tend to share the influence background representing the power in the church. Allies, servants, and contacts may also be used to pull together messianic voices, characters. The old faith is only common in Eastern Europe, in any real sense and may share allies, contacts, or a cray. The Order of Hermes is hierarchical and is likely to share mentor, allies, contacts, or possibly library. The Spirit Talkers may share mentors and servants. The Valdermen tend to be the most alienated and tend to only be unified through a shared mentor. We then get an interesting thing where it just goes through each of the backgrounds and gives a sample chantry or cabal that is organized around it. For instance, the wooden circle is a group of naturalist mages who share a chantry, the unusual well of Oberner is a crate or node that suffuses an entire town with quintessence they give a library example where a group finds a treasure trove of documents in a cave and it is listed in library as library 3 but per my understanding from dark ages mage where 1 dot of library is one part of one book a cave full of books represents i think library 12 this is also one where they pull their magic to create a magical servant, and that just feels weird. It's like, what holds your group together? Oh, we share a butler. Okay. Not sure how I feel about sharing sanctum in that they tend to be pretty specific, but the book kind of mentions this and then walks it back and goes, eh, it should really only happen if they're all part of the same fellowship and they all largely agree on its interpretation. This chapter, to me, really filled in a lot of the holes of how the medieval world worked. Those were some of the sections in Sorcerer's Crusade that I most enjoyed. Sadly, we did not get lengthy paragraphs on fashion, which tends to be my favorite section. (laughs) We got one throwaway mention to someone wearing a cap instead of a wimple in Darkening Sky, but no, no line is perfect. The explanation of social roles I found very useful. This kind of started the trend that happens in a lot of other books where multi-line authors aren't quite sure what to do with mages like the apex of this was in World of Darkness Combat where each line got a chapter and it's like, here's how you can use Embody plus a kitchen blender to deal aggravated damage to a werewolf in the Umbra. And I'm like, yes, give me more information. And I'm like, oh man, we're coming to the mage chapter. This is going to be great. And then you get to the mage chapter, he goes, magic's hard and complicated. I don't know, make something up. I'm like, really? That's that's why I bought you. (laughs) And I'm like, and you go through the fellowships, it's like, Hmm, Bettini mages may share servants, allies, or contacts. Messianic voices characters are different and may share servants, allies, or contacts. The spirit talkers are often widely dispersed and they may share servants, allies, or mentor. And you're like, that's all just the same thing in different orders. And it's like, servants, Allies or mentors, and I'm like, mm, okay, I understand. I think I under- <laughs> i see where this is going. So I wish there were a little more mage-specific stuff, like locations and so on. We did get the the sample groups, and I appreciated that. But what did you think about the the, the chapter one, Adam? Well, I thought chapter one was pretty good. The section in the country was a helpful guide to village
0: life and its officials, and then right after that, in the city, helps us understand how city life at that time was different from country life. And and it made sense, and it was helpful. I started out reading about all this detailed history, and it read kind of like a history book. It's like, do I need this? And I started thinking, no, actually, yeah, I do kind of need this, really, because in modern-day World of Darkness, you know, when the NPCs have some trouble, oh, we're going to lose our apartment, we're going to lose my car, no, and this is how they operate. We kind of know that, but when it comes to the Dark Ages, you know, 1230, it was pretty darn different back then so if the npc peasant is about to lose his farm it's like well how does that work how do you help him and and this kind of helps fill in the gaps it's like oh well it's owned by the lord but the lord is always gone and so there's the senestral and and so you need to make him happy and uh, he's trying to hide something from his lord and so if you can help him do that then you can make the whole thing work so oh well okay i, I guess i can see this and then in the city, these craftsman guilds are a new thing, and they're exerting a sort of political force that really didn't exist before. And so if, you, if your players come into a city and it's like, yeah, well, we need something built, so we're going to have to talk to the carpenters. Yeah, well, can I, as a storyteller, can I do anything interesting with that? Yeah, I, there, here's a few ideas from chapter one of this book to make some interactions with the guild that kind of make sense and can be interesting at the same time. So this, this was useful, and I did like reading through it. There was some mention of how when player characters put the resources together they're going to own something and they're going to want to get something out of it for example if they have influence over a, a small medieval city then the annual market that happens there is going to either lose them money or make them money and so that matters. And so wouldn't it be nice to have some some roll tables or or some mechanic for, hey, this was a good fair year or a bad fair year and it affects your resources like this or here's something to actually do to make sure it's a good trade fair instead of a bad one. It, It seems like there could have been more support Behind that kind of thing, there is another mention of how hermetic arrogance is right off the charts. That was that was kind of fun to see. I've come to expect that from mage books now. The section on fellowships it does give some good information. It goes over the six mage fellowships in the Dark Ages, and it says this fellowship has you know these backgrounds are usually high and these backgrounds are usually low but this other fellowship is you know different backgrounds are usually high and low and of course the players can be the exception to the rule that's what makes a lot of interesting main characters and books and movies but it's just nice to know what to expect when you go to a chantry of Ali Bateen they're probably going to have a lot of this and very little of that and so I thought that was nice and also when looking through the backgrounds of shared examples of shared backgrounds I thought some of the examples were rather poor but when it came to the mages it seemed like there were some pretty useful examples i thought not perfect but some pretty good stuff and so when you look at the credits page of this book it says that you know this author wrote this chapter this other author wrote this other chapter and i got the feeling that okay maybe they did but i'll bet they went to the authors who specialize in the other lines to get some material because i'm willing to bet that de pesa had our back and gave us some good examples of shared mage backgrounds because i i just thought they worked better than some of
1: the other examples of shared backgrounds. But on to Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is entitled Home and Hearth. It indicates that Dark Ages games tend to be more place-based, and it's like the Garu are tied to the land figuratively. The Zemisi are more literally tied to the land land controls who's powerful land is important. And I feel like there is a unstated major premise in that it is not who owns the land, but so much as who can functionally defend and utilize it, which is never really discussed. It kind of starts with the presumption that feudalism is operating, but then we also have this background of war that is never quite discussed in this book, where it's like, yeah, it's good to have like the deed and have the king say, no, this is yours. It's something different to deal with a war between monarchs we get more information on how other night folk consider it important and like then we remember that mages can like teleport <laughs> and they're like mages tend not to have the same bond to the land but they understand it's important some land is where mages keep their stuff and mages love their stuff and i'm like okay got it this is how we're treating mages they're like land can also have a cray don't mages mages love craze don't they crays <laughs> are often far away from mortal areas, which makes it harder on the Bettini and the Hermetics. But the Old Faith and Spear Talkers are totes fine with that. Crays are also important since commoners can't detect them. Anyone who's snooping around will be met with suspicion. I think it said something like polite insistence, and then it's like if they're trying to to take your cray, they will be met with great violence, and that will be used to defend craes. But that many craes every year are successfully taken. I don't know of an example in literal mage history where a cray was ever taken from one group to another, like over the several million words of mage. And it's like, oh no, people come for these things all the time. We have like one and a half examples of them actually changing hands. And then it's like, also, cray's may be attacked by Um Umbrood. So this didn't to me, have a lot of mage information in it. But what what did you think about chapter two, Adam? Let's see. Chapter two, it it opened up with a section that may have been
0: a bit longer than it needed to be, but it talked about the importance of land I guess more more culturally and in the minds of the people of the time. And I I thought that was, although a bit long, I, I thought it was useful. I mean, People in the 1200s did think of land a little differently than we do today. We buy and sell it rapidly and have no emotional attachment to it. I think back to my childhood home and I was there for like, what, four years? And it's like, yeah, that was one of the houses I lived in when I was little, so what? But in the 1200s, it was different. So I think that can be helpful to you know help a storyteller to get a shift in their, their thinking. I was surprised by how it, it appeared to me that when the werewolves pool their backgrounds and share hunting grounds, they don't seem to get a lot of bang for their buck. <laughs> for, for most of the other types of games in Dark Ages, when they put their resources together, I see how they get a nice benefit from it. But from werewolves, I, I just didn't see all that much of a benefit. And there was a short section for mages towards the end of the chapter, and yeah, I agree with Terry. It it didn't say much. It was very generic. It wasn't very helpful. Um, Mages defend their territory. It really matters to them. It's like, yeah, I kind of figured that. But other than that, I I hate to say it, but chapter
1: 2 was a bit of a disappointment for me. Onward to chapter 3. Here we kind of get into the more nutsy and boltsy section. So you define an area that you want control over, you pick what it is, you pick what the nature of it is, you pick why you have control over it. Are you the Lord? Did the Lord give it to you? Mages may choose a domain that no one cares about, such as a swamp or ruins. Some mages will take advantage of mortal hierarchies and rise to the top of them because they have the benefit, unlike werewolves of not being giant murder machines and unlike vampires of not being dead and unlike ghosts of being alive. So they can be like, you know what? I want this land. Okay, how are you gonna get it? I'm gonna buy it from that guy. Alternatively, I'm gonna marry that person. Alternatively, I'm gonna ask real nicely. Cool, those are options on the table. Are you going to use your magic to do that? No, I'm going to do the fact that I'm a normal effing human most of the time. Huh, that's pretty smart. Let's do it. We then get a little bit of a system, just a little bit of a system. Each person pays an experience point. You pick the background, you do some stuff in game, and ta-da, you have a background now reflecting your domain. If If it's yours that's being built upon, you don't have to pay that experience point your domain can translate into a domain, which then lets you pool other backgrounds. So basically you say, this is our anchor to our area of control, this is what represents it, and now we can combine other backgrounds up to the maximum level of that background. So everyone pulls their point. They're like, this is our castle. This is our area of control. We we have our six-point chantry. This is now the most important one. We can pull other backgrounds now up to that six-point. You can only combine backgrounds if it makes sense between characters. For instance, if Adam's character has three dots in allies representing a dragon that owes Adam a bunch of favors, and I have two dots in allies representing a bunch of wandering minstrels who will come rough up people with a precursor of what will later be known as the Art of Mimestry. We don't get to combine those two where there is no Dragon Mime hybrid, at least in this game. Maybe later in Changeling we get that. Pooled backgrounds can be done as the sum of the backgrounds minus one per contributing player. So if we have three players that all have kind of similar Backgrounds and contacts. One has three, one has three, and another has four. Pulled together, that's going to be three plus three plus four. That's ten minus one per player. Uh, that brings us down to seven. As I said, those pooled backgrounds can exceed your anchor background. the The complication here is there isn't a lot of mechanical heft in Dark Ages to having something like allies five. Like it is not common for many of these backgrounds that you would be pooling it. So, for instance, generally you're not going to be rolling like wits plus talisman (laughs) so so combining them doesn't necessarily do something so a little bit more crunch on what we're actually doing with influence or so on or contacts or servants or something like that to me would have been a bit useful otherwise it is just kind of strictly additive like yes i have two points in servants and you have two points in service and this represents that we have two sets of servants Okay. We then get some information on guards, that it is hard for mages to get guards because obviously you are in league with the devil. There is no comment in the section that vampires do not seemingly have this problem, despite the fact that the whole reason vampires exist is that Cain spit in the eye of God. And you're telling me people are like, well, that person who doesn't have to breathe and is never awake during the day and has fangs, I'm going to work for him. This guy over here that smells kind of funny and mutters to himself occasionally, no, not going to do it. Too, no, I am too pure of moral character to do it. It then mentions that in pagan territories, though, the people are much more likely to help mages be like, yeah, I like the cut of his jib. And then it's like, hermetics have grogs. And then it just moves on. <laughs> like, okay, thank you. Mage 1E core just, just defines a turb of grogs and never is it revisited, nor does it have to. Because once you have read about the turb of grogs, it's in there forever. Let's face it, you know grogs are grogs. You, know, you yeah. meet a guy, you must be
0: a grog. Yeah, I'm a grog. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They mention that mages are more likely to have a few highly trusted guards than a large swarm, that arming them is hard, and your local lord is gonna be like, so why are you giving all these people swords? Which to me is actually quite a reasonable question. The Pope has outlawed crossbows for use against Christians, I like the idea because later we get traps and one of them is the crossbow trap. So I want to see someone create a magical effect that will shoot non-Christians with a crossbow, but Christians get stabbed. So it's like a crossbow and then like a sword on a big arm. And then a magical effect is like, nope, this guy likes Jesus. Stab him. Don't crossbow him. That would be, (laughs) that would be blasphemous. Some groups use animal guards and it's like, mages can do this too. You know, using magic. Like, thanks. (laughs) <laughs> it's also weird to hear about the control over weapons because as an American, I can basically get a shotgun out of a vending machine. So it is weird to be like, you're like pointy stick, you need to be licensed for that pointy stick. It's like, oh, I don't have my pointy stick license. Okay, give me the pointy stick back. <laughs> Recruitment can be hard as mer- as mercenaries get rowdy if not kept o- occupied. This makes them sound like mercenaries are like Australian shepherd dogs or something. And you have to like hide their pay inside of peanut butter that you put inside of a pine cone and then hit under a bunch of sticks or something. And be like, Go get your gold coins. Okay. Oh, oh, and that way you can like tire them out. So your mercenaries don't cause problems. And it's like the younger sons of cross people are a good angle. I'm like, okay, <laughs> good to know. We then get some information on actual houses in the sense that like where people live and such if through much of Europe, wattle and daub is common followed by stone or peat or something else. And it kept referencing Wales doesn't really have trees, but it has stones. So people build with stones Good to know. You need three dots in craft or two in a specialty, which implies to me that hut craft now needs to be a secondary ability that we just didn't know about. We get systems that indicate that you could build a house with resources one in two to five weeks, for the first time in mage history, we actually have a resources system, sweet merciful dink. In a town, you're expected to use timber frame or slate if that's common in your area, such as in Wales, where stone is common and wood is not. And you can do that for resources two or three. A warehouse can be built with resources three. And even the most basic of warehouses needs to be wood framed and and fortified clay, except in Wales, where trees are not common and stone is. A church will require resources four and is generally built with stone, except in Wales, where stone churches are built with stone instead of wood. And a monastery, which requires resources five. We also get some information that ruined castles are rare. And then it then it goes on to explain all the areas in Europe where it's like, well, if you really want to ruin castle, here's a bunch of them. The Albigensian Crusade, up oh, south of France, purge of Languedoc, just kind of full of of castles apparently southern france is a mess during this period of time during the great brie wars or something i know nothing of this period we then get a lot of systems for breaking and entering and i got very excited because it suggested that vampire characters needed to roll dexterity plus ledger domain and i only knew ledger domain as a changeling art so i'm like What? Vampires get access to this? No, it's actually something on the vampire character sheet. Just to indicate how... Nerdy mages are even in the dark ages. We do not get Lage Domain, streetwise larceny, or really any ability that mages are capable of doing anything illegal to break into a place, which which is fine because we get far too many systems on how to open a literal door. We get a system on how to cut a rope. Cutting, cutting a rope. Dexterity Against Difficulty 5, for all those people who were kind of curious how that worked. It is also the case that, again, unless you're in Wales where things tend to be built of stone because timber is rare... Your house is essentially made out of wheat. You can just punch through someone's house at any given time. If you have a strength of at least two, you can just like Kool-Aid man your way into it probably. Again, except in Wales where it's probably made of stone apparently. But I appreciate that these systems are there. We get surprisingly detailed systems on how to install traps And it outlines that it requires a certain cost and resources, a difficulty roll, increments in which it needs to be rolled, the craft abilities that you need to get. We get pit traps, swinging blades, pulling back a tree and just kind of wailing someone in the narts with it. Lots of rocks that can drop on people, a crossbow trap for non-Christians. And then it has a section on how mages defend their places. And it says, mages use magic. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, again, good. Good to know. (laughs) Those mages. Yeah. So this system... This chapter was an interesting mix of things. Again, the two groups that are kind of treated oddly in it are Mages and the Welsh. I... Didn't think that would be a sentence, I would say, regarding a book, but here we are. So Adam, what did you think about this chapter except in Wales where this chapter is made out of stone?
0: Well, other than Wales, for me, chapter three was the reason that this book was written. It's like this was the meat of the book for me. It's like, okay, let's get into the reason I reached for this book was because this other Dark Ages book said, oh, if your mages are putting their resources together and building chantries, you probably want Rite of Princess. I was like, chantries sign me up and get here and it says mages have chantries oh yeah but i kind of kind of knew that okay so let's let's get into the details page 74 uh, there's information on background costs for things i Like Terry said, this was very simple information. I actually didn't find it all that helpful. As a storyteller, I think what I would do is I would pick up the core rulebook for Mage Revised Edition. I would look at experience point costs for things, and then I would calculate and sort of work something out starting with that. I think that would be more helpful than page 74 of this book, even when considering Dark Ages, Mage. And entering and rules for, you know, breaking into this place or how you can make it hard for someone to break into your place. And... There's a lot of detail here, but I, I actually did find this this useful. I, I think it was helpful to have. You can defend your building with this kind of entrance instead of that kind of entrance and get a sense of what's involved when someone tries to break in there. So, okay, that, that's that's good. The trap section was useful. Probably a little longer than it actually needed to be, but it talked about traps you can do in the wilderness, traps you can do in cities and towns and, and, and buildings and so on and how they're a little different. And Okay, I, I appreciate that. That's useful for me. After all the swipes that World of Darkness writers have taken at Dungeons & Dragons, I was very amused to see a pit drop in a World of Darkness book. I just kind of had this feeling that, oh, no, we can't do a pit trap That's so D&D. It's like, well, there's, there's one in Rite of Princes, you know, so uh, just, just putting that out there. There's a section at the end for poisons, and I found this to be different enough from the poison information in Sorcerer's Crusade to make it, it useful. It, it, it was an example of how making and using poisons is different in the 1200s from how it is in, say, the early 1500s. So I, I thought that uh, served its purpose well and is probably good for a game. That pretty much wraps up chapter three from my point of view. Now for chapter four, we get samples of domains for vampires, mages, inquisitors, and werewolves. Vampires have established the domain of Strood, a large farming village in England. A lot of travelers pass through, so the vampires take advantage of the busy inn. The four vampires are trying to grow the village into a town with a proper market so their power will increase. They scheme against nearby vampires and bite a lot of people. Let's turn now to Ulf's Hall, where mages live. This wealthy home is fairly large and located on a tiny island off the coast of Norway. Ulf's Hall belongs to the Valderman Fellowship, and those who don't know rune magic will have a hard time even finding the island in the constant mists a pile of treasure and well-made weapons surrounds the lord's seat in the hall this is an early middle ages uh, nordic kind of a hall basically the building is one very big room and at, at the back there's a great big chair where the boss sits and that's kind of the the idea here some valdermen mages contribute to it while others take small portions away to be spent on the fellowship's goals ravens gather on the building's roof many of them are actually spirits and function as a level four familiar to every mage of the cabal on the island it comes as no surprise that the cabal is called the raven's wing the cabal seeks to maintain the old ways and they are aided by a small fishing village on the island this village is too small for the church to notice, so they continue to revere the Norse gods. They also supply servants to the mages. Brand Gridson is an imposing valderman who matches the image of the warrior who founded Ulf's Hall 200 years ago. Brand would like to launch sea voyages to explore far to the west. Three other mages fill out the raven's wing. Ulf's Hall has the following backgrounds. Chantry 7, Cray 2, Resources 5, Familiar 4, Allies 3, Shared Sanctum 3, Influence 2, Servants 2, Library 2. The Seven Dots in Chantry breaks down to three for size, two for security, and two to integrate it into the surrounding community. But isn't that influence? I'm a little fuzzy on integration. The mages of the Chantry have a sweet deal, as long as they can keep a low profile. However, the Cray and the Spirit of the Hall urge the mages to venture out and achieve great Viking deeds deeds that would bring unwanted attention. An odd spirit haunts the island during snowstorms, a gangrel vampire is watching the island from afar, and a chantry of hermetics are searching the coast of Norway for a cray they noticed. Can the isolation last? The Shrine of St. James the Apostle lies in Santiago de Compostela in the northwest corner of Spain. The protectorate of Compostela is a stronghold of inquisitors who protect pilgrims traveling to the shrine. The poor knights of Acre and Oculi Day are the two inquisitor groups operating there. The vampire prince of Compostela has the hots for the leader of the Oculi Day. Never a good thing. Another Oculi Day member is hanging out in the vampire prince's home. That is just cool. We turn now to vampires. The Sept of the Bright Promise is a werewolf stronghold in Acre in the Crusader States. Today, that's North Israel right on the coast. This is a rare urban cairn shared by the Children of Gaia and the Warders, who are called the Glasswalkers in modern times. It operates out of a trading house in a part of the city where craftsmen and merchants live. The Warders are looking for their chance to dominate the Children of Gaia. Why let the Shadow Lords have all the fun? And that's chapter four. As for my thoughts, Ulf's Hall wasn't terribly interesting, but it is nice to see a safe, secure place for Valderman players to do their thing. Like the fortunes of their fellowship, the place won't last too many more years. The vampire hideout in Strood made sense and seems appropriate for new vampire characters, a good place to focus on growing your stronghold. Protectorate of Compostela was also a nice home base for Inquisitors, with interesting things happening nearby. They'll be tangling with vampires soon, but That's their job. Bright Promise wasn't nearly werewolfy enough for me. Also, not enough interesting things happening there. I'd call it a do-over.
1: Terry, what did you think of chapter four? So I mostly focused on reading Ulf's Hall, but I couldn't help but seeing the contrast with Strood, where it's like, Strood will never be able to make a large change in the area, but here's 19 other political considerations because you're a vampire player and that's your kind of thing. And I'm like, ooh. And then we get to Ulf's Hall and we're like, There's a flock of birds where all of them serve as a pooled familiar. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Everyone gets a raven. Every Valderman has at least six ravens, seemingly. If I ever did a guide to Valderman familiars, it would just be called Oops All Ravens. Ulf's Hall is aggressively devoid of plot hooks in terms of how to include it in your game, where it's like... It's not really on anyone's map. If it were on anyone's map, it wouldn't be the same place. The place wants people to do things, but they don't. This place is so dull that we didn't even tell you how powerful really any of the mages are. In fact, we just gave you their nature and demeanor. We also gave you their fellowship, but all of them are Veldermen, so that's really wasted space. Also, there's a single vampire who's like, Well, that's kind of weird. And I'm just like, Ah, let me do something with it! Like, they gave us a very nice snow globe to a dead way of living, and they're like, isn't this thing in here you can't touch interesting? (laughs) And if you did, you would drown? Such is the way of things. That's the way mages frequently kind of identified. The other thing that I came away with so far kind of from this chapter and from this book overall is maybe I read Dark Age Inquisitor. It seems a little more interesting than at first I thought it was going to be, but that's what I, I thought about chapter four. What did you think about the book overall? This book
0: approaches domain level play
1: and I like that but
0: I don't think there was enough meat on those bones there for me. When I got again when I got to chapter 3 I thought there would be some information about how to build out a chantry or how to spend your background points to make this chantry different from that chantry and instead we got breaking and entering and traps. It's like, well, okay, that that does it does kind of apply, but I would really like some more here. Also, I would like some systems, rules or role tables or, or, or something like that to see how it works when you use these pooled backgrounds over time. Like if you have pooled resources and that means you manipulate this craftsman guild in the city, okay, well, is business good this year or bad this year? I mean, can we we roll on this and, and see? It seems like if your resources are invested in something that's supposed to make money for you, then over time, your resource rating might go up or down depending on how good business is or how other people are attacking your source of income and uh, and that's just one example i mean if, if you have influence in the in the local neighborhood that can be very important for a chantry of mages it's like do the locals like us or do they hate us i mean that actually matters if they really hate us they might rat us out to inquisitors or, or something else and so is there some system for you know we sent food into the the village uh, you know a mile down the road now is that going to help our influence go up or down over time I mean let's let's if if this is the focus of a group of players, they've all sunk background points into it. It's like yes, we are we are totally invested in this chantry. We want to see it do well. We want to see it grow in power so that we can grow in power along with it. Sounds fun to me. So yeah, I want systems for how the resources, influence, etc. go up and down over time. So it's like if if we're playing this game, then let's play it already. Let let's get into it. And again, just not a lot of meat on those bones. So a little little disappointed there. There is good material in this book. I'm glad I read it. It wasn't a waste of my
1: time. I'm not going to say I hated it. I just wish there was more in it. But uh, Terry, how about you? Yeah, the uh, I mentioned the opening questions of does it explain how the world kind of works in this era? Definitely. I really got a sense that I'm like, okay, I now have a better understanding of what the web of relationships in medieval Europe was. The book was aggressively generic in terms of its place information. I thought there was going to be a little bit more information on this is how it works in the British Isles, this is how it works in Islamic Spain, this is how it works in France, this is what the Holy Roman Empire, this is what the Italian city states are like. And it kind of assumed this generic Franco-German burger forest wheat field setup which okay, Except for the periodic mentions of how things are specific, like the south of France having like castles for days that are unoccupied, and there being little timber in wales, well, so things tend to be made out of stone. Which is now something I will be saying on my deathbed, so... Thank you, this book. The treatment of mages felt highly perfunctory. One of the things that I've gained an appreciation for is this book is both for mage players looking for information about how to run these things, but also for storytellers using mage in games about other lines. So it makes sense to me that a bunch of the nuances, maybe, of the fellowships tend to be cut off. So the messianic voices are simplified as just being tied to the Catholic Church church. The spirit talkers are just a vestige of the old faith that tend to hang around near cemeteries or what have you. The Order of Hermes and the Patini are the, the two hierarchical organized ones, for instance, even though a lot of them have their own kind of structures, depending on where in the world you are. This felt like a tiny, tiny step to close the distance between World of Darkness and Ars Magica, but it was a Very, very tiny step. We didn't get a season system. We got no indication of what high-level backgrounds do. Maybe that is elsewhere. Like, for instance, the technocracy books in Mage give you information on what 6 through 10 dots do for some of the backgrounds. We also get that kind of information in Rich Bastard's Guide. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a vampire book that's like Guide to the High Clans or something like that or The Road of Kings or something that gives that kind of information, and I just hadn't seen it. But there wasn't even like a reference to it, if it does exist, and that would have been useful to be able to track it down. A lot of the sections were like, this is how the vampires go about politicking. This is how the werewolves pull in their ties to Gaia and their kinfolk." And then we got to mages and it's like, IDK, use magic? Which I guess is fine. I would have liked a little bit more than that, but kind of such is the way of things. I thought this book was solid. I would get it. I would recommend it for anyone who's doing a Dark Ages game who wants a little bit more of an understanding, especially if they want to use other lines. And as I mentioned, I am now more interested in Dark Ages Inquisitor than I was before. It makes some spotty references to what Wraith and changeling would be like in this era, and sometimes it treats Dark Ages Fae like it's a thing, and other times it doesn't. So that's kind of hit or miss if that's something that you're really looking for, but... (laughs) It was not bad. I got, I got it discounted on RPG. That was that was an easy one for me. So any other thoughts before we talk about Darkening Sky or how do we want to transition to, to talking about book two? No, I'm, I'm certainly ready to talk about Darkening
0: Sky. I'm going to kick off the walkthrough for this one. It is a story written for mages. There aren't a lot of published stories for mage. I've been on the Discord for uh, this podcast, talked with other mage fans, and there are a number of people who say, you know, I'd like some more published stories for mage. I'm kind of used to approaching role-playing games in that way, and so, you know, I'm going to find everything I can. Well, this is one of them. The first thing you need to know about Darkening Sky is it has small text. The letters (laughs) are tiny, cute little guys. After a page or two, they aren't cute anymore. The prelude fiction describes a druid of the Old Faith warning villagers to take refuge in the Lord's Keep. Two villagers turn into wolf monsters and run off. Once inside the Keep, the eclipse of the sun is complete, and vampires in guards' clothing step out. They realize the villagers see them as vampires, so they start to attack, but just then, the two werewolves jump the fence and wipe out the vampires. It seems eclipses make werewolves and vampires freak out, but mages just get a little worried. Forward, Matt McFarland uh, tells us Darkening Sky was planned for 2004, but got cancelled. 2011 allowed the book to be completed, after all, but with new people. There was a real eclipse in 1230. Uh, The phrase, the oath truce falls with the darkening sky, got McFarland excited so it was the central idea all the stories in this book revolve around the primal fear of seeing the sun disappear David Hill gives us the intro this book offers five stories, one each for werewolf fae, inquisitor, vampire, and mage each story starts off with about a paragraph for each of the other stories giving suggestions for mixing the two games I'm going to cover the mage story as it was the only one written with mages in mind. A one page fiction piece comes first. Brucato has said mages are jerks and boy does this fiction prove it a mage feels pressure to prepare a ritual for King Frederick II, so she takes it out on a young page, chewing out the people you work with. Doesn't sound like a path to success, but when you're a mage, you write your own rules. Right? Isn't that how it works? Anyways, Frederick II is a holy Roman emperor and crowned himself king of the crusader state of Jerusalem after taking it by diplomacy instead of warfare. He considers himself an heir to ancient Rome and desires a direct audience with the Almighty. To accomplish this, he is gathering sages and sorcerers to conduct a grand ritual. The players will hear of this, and whether they want to help or hinder, they can accept a position in Jerusalem. A sidebar in history tells us they are changing things a bit by having Frederick II remain in Jerusalem in 1230, and a conflict of regular soldiers becomes a conflict of mages. Crossover introduction gives brief suggestions for running this story for fae inquisitors, vampires, werewolves, nothing noteworthy every story in this book has a section called chronicle map but only the werewolf story gives us a map chronicle outline would make more sense for me there are four important scenes the storytellers expected to run even though they call them the four scenes you have to run i thought of them more as like phases of the story it seems like more than one scene could go into each of these quote unquote scenes number one first the players learn mages are gathering in jerusalem to advise or participate in a grand ritual for frederick ii uh, the king is not a devout christian and interested in the occult number two Mages are respecting the peace between their fellowships, but forming alliances of their own. Some support the king, while others oppose him. The messianic voices are quietly supporting a batini mage named al Mazri who plans to disrupt the ritual. And number three, in the king's palace, mages settle rivalries, trade information, and prepare for the day of the ritual. The players will see wondrous and horrific acts of magic among the preparations. It becomes clear the ritual will be potent and shake up the local area considerably. Number four, the eclipse happens on May 14th. It will pierce a mystic barrier between the heavens and earth. Frederick II will either become a powerful being or chaotic forces will be unleashed. Next is write-ups for three mage NPCs, stats for non-mage Templars, and a gifted man who leads soldiers and answers to the Messianic voices. We learn the Ali-Batin are backing al mazri They want to maintain good relations with the Sultan of Egypt and the Messianic voices. Malbert is a Messianic mage with strong magic. He leads five other Messianics, three of whom are in the Templars. He is a dishonest schemer, frighteningly narrow-minded, and believes the ends justify the means. A perfect example from the Dark Ages mage rulebook of a Messianic. Yona is a craftmason who is personal advisor to Frederick II. She wants the ritual to succeed because she believes the king will be a good ruler who reduces the power of the Catholic Church to begin a new age of reason. Roughly two pages follow of different methods you can use to pull your players into the story. This is some nice material we get names of astrology books and insights to be gained from them some dreams or visions you can give to player characters and different rumors circulating if you're going to depict travel to jerusalem it is recommended to have an attack by templars they want to remove mages invited by frederick ii once reaching jerusalem the players will learn the leaders of other crusader states are influencing the templars who sometimes fight with the Hospitallers and teutonic knights who are in frederick's camp there are a number of messianic mages in the city numerous holy sites have true faith ratings that can hinder magic we learn mages use holy sites around europe as neutral grounds for meetings between fellowships unless they're messianics in which case they have home court advantage frederick rules from the tower of david where hermetic wards make spying and mystic infiltration difficult a mixed group of mages have been working for some time on the grand ritual Batini and Messianic mages aren't present. Many of the mages are here for money or access to rare books. A bold quote is on page 122. This convocation of Magi have learned that despite their willfulness, occultists will with wildly divergent philosophies can work together toward a single goal a possibility their descendants might explore in the centuries to come end quote. yes the formation of the nine mystic traditions started here folks mm-hmm not sure i'm going to believe that but i'm sure the author was grinning immensely while typing it for those players who want to join the club and finish the ritual they must accomplish something in the power category and something in the knowledge category we get a few examples of projects they could work on if capturing the souls of a Executed criminals and teaching young children in captivity obtained through dubious means to communicate with spirits sounds unappealing. Ask yourself if you're really dedicated to piercing the heavens. (laughs) This opens up interesting role-playing opportunities as players who want to infiltrate and then just stand in the back will ask themselves if they can stand by while crimes like this are committed. In order to complete a grimoire focusing on death, the players must travel to Cairo and get material from the Hemka Sobek. That's right, they're back! Nice to see them again, even if they don't make ideal dinner guests. Schemes and counter-schemes is a great section that examines the elements of the story. The ritual will transform Frederick, so why don't we just kill him? We get the reasons why that's difficult, the consequences of that action, and the possibility that the Craft Mason will just take his place. If players want to help the ritual, they will oppose the Batinian messianic mages, who are tough customers and have henchmen. If they want to pretend to help but sabotage the ritual, we get systems to handle that. We get another possibility some players won't think of. Steal Frederick's mundane treasure. With no funds, he can't continue his operation. The loot is hidden, but not warded. I see great scenes of sneaking through the palace at night, away from the places the mages are watching. The only story element not addressed here is when the ritual goes wrong. We read some mage will attempt the ritual and... The eclipse can't be stopped. Can the players find out what will happen if the ritual goes wrong? How else do they plan for that possibility? If they can't find out, the players might panic and flee Jerusalem entirely. From here, we get details on the ritual, since no doubt it will be the climax of the story. Music and formal settings play prominent roles. The four cardinal directions each have a mini-ritual with mages and guards operating a device. These involve the elements, and we learn how to effectively attack them. Uh, which can also be used to defend them. In the catacombs beneath the tower, prisoners are executed in large numbers to power the ritual. Many participants don't know. If players can discover this sordid detail and attack or expose it, they can derail the ritual. The last component is the throne in the highest room of the tower. The focus of the ritual has 20 elite guards, plus the craft mason defending. If the ritual succeeds, Frederick becomes a marauder. He turns his guards into monstrous automatons and retreats into a three-layer cocoon for 24 hours. If the players can't destroy the cocoon, he emerges as a potent marauder bent on tearing up the city. At this point, NPC mages will probably help the players. A sidebar states, if the players can't crack the cocoon, the storyteller could say, it is empty when it opens. Problem solved. Everyone goes home. Don't be surprised if your players don't accept that ending. If the players supported the ritual, it states the crazed marauder with supreme power is an unexpected result. They are advised to talk him into acting normal, and maybe everything will be okay. I'm sorry, but this is a ridiculously weak suggestion. (laughs) Uh, Next, for the first time, we're told what happens if the ritual fails. It ain't pretty. Frederick pops like a balloon, although it's actually messier than that. I'm not going to go into detail. Demon-looking creatures pour out of the mystic gates while bystanders who fail their willpower roll turn into monsters. The city becomes a storm of chaos and violence. Very exciting. The text tells us players can use magic to return people to normal and drive the demons off. Yeah, I'm sorry, but when the whole city falls apart that dramatically, the players are supposed to fix it with a few on-the-spot spells. It also states players can herd the monsters through holy ground where the heavenly influence will restore them. A horde of murderous demons are pouring through the gates and players are supposed to redirect them all to the shrine down the street. Am I missing something here? After that, the players need to close the gates. We're told they can use their magic for that. It says clever players will use the devices from the ritual to aid them. We're told if all else fails, the players can flee the city and ask someone else to fix it. Is that a satisfying conclusion to a story or what? Now that I know what happens when the ritual is stopped, the smart players will flee the city as soon as they find out. For me, this is the biggest flaw in this story. As a storyteller, I would let the players know there's a way to not only disrupt the ritual, but also nullify it. The players would need to research the nullification while under a time constraint for drama. Needing to recruit help for this improved solution would add a nice complication. This chapter ends with the details on true celestial knowledge. This involves the pillar magic of Hermetic, Bettini, or Messianic mages mixed with Cosmology 3. It allows a mage to gain insights from viewing the stars and consulting charts or works of astrology. I liked this story. After fixing the flaw I mentioned, this story is flexible with several ways to play it. It allows different types of mages to find their own solutions in a situation that offers several interesting elements. It seems unlikely players would want to help the ritual, but if you keep the prisoner executions and kidnapped children hidden until near the end, you could have a plausible reason for players to change sides and scramble to repair their mess. Uh, Before I'd run this, I'd spruce it up, add interesting places and treasures in the palace. Uh, The catacombs beneath could hold all kinds of interesting secrets. Terry, what are your thoughts on the mage story for Darkening Sky?
1: What are my thoughts on the mage story for Darkening Style? (laughs) This is an interesting text. I feel like half of it was a celebration. It, it, kind of in the same way that convention book Void Engineer was kind of a capstone on a bunch of work for defining the technocracy and kind of bringing the first half of Mage Revised to a close. This felt like a bit of a celebration of what Mage Dark Ages could have been if there had been a bunch more stuff as you mentioned, we get mentions of the Wulong, the Taftani, the Hemkosobek. I mean, who doesn't want who doesn't want a Crocodile God reference in, in their book? We get a mention to the Katab and House Golo, and it is just... I don't know if a Mage book can have fan service, but that's kind of what it felt like. It also leads off with one of my favorite quotes in Mage, and it says... But this book, Dark Ages Line, began before the birth belongs to an era where it's easy for anyone with an internet connection to pick up basic history about the era, people and places mentioned in this chapter. Therefore, we won't waste much much time repeating mundane historical facts, though we'll refer to them while concentrating on dark medieval secrets. And I'm like, yeah, don't waste my time. I don't need all this stuff. I'm just finding myself. And then immediately it's like uh, Frederick II was the third confessor to the secondary adjunct to Saxony, as we all know. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, we all knew that. I know it. Why don't you tell me some basic historical facts to prove that you know them? (laughs) Yeah, I was lost immediately. I take back half of every mean thing I ever said, but only half about not providing historical concept because I have no concept of what 13th century Jerusalem is. And you go to the Wikipedia page for 13th century Jerusalem and it's longer than the Manhattan phone book because it's Wikipedia in the year of our Lord 2023. And I'm like, I also quickly realized that almost literally every mage adventure published is Stop the Ritual, including Loom of Fate, the Red Sign, Ascension, but backwards, depending on which one that you pick, Chaos Factor. Like, they're they're all just, we need to stop the ritual, which is fine, but this book really drove it home that we have no other plots <laughs> that have been done so far. I also that it's like, how would you get your characters involved? Well, the only way there is to get characters involved, force them to do astrology. Alternatively, Interpretation of Dream, which is how Ascension kicks off, it has a line where it's like Saracens are natural schemers. And I'm like, is that a tongue in cheek reference? Is that just racism out of nowhere? Is that a historical thing that I need to understand? I don't know. But every time a Saracen has been mentioned in Mage, I'm like, what? what should I be doing with this? They say that the ritual wants to allow communication beyond the lunar sphere. And I'm like, is this going to be event horizon for Dark Ages Mage where Frederick II says, I have such wonderful things to show you. And the answer is yes. Literally that's what happens. It's a gateway to hell that becomes overrun with demons, which implies that sometime between Dark Ages Mage and Sorcerer's Crusade, somebody cleared all the demons out of space. So thanks. <laughs> like uh, I want that story of the proto void engineers that just have to kill all the space demons. I don't know. Maybe the the authors ran different games than me, but it would take literal years for most of my players to piece together all the plot elements that are listed here being like, well, obviously the Northern gate is tied to the element of fire. And if we don't stab a pig at midnight, then we won't have enough pig souls to allow this enchanted obsidian flute to play the notes of doom that will open it. Like how do you figure that out? Where does that come from? Maybe there's a lot of lore roles or they were just very academic characters. And it mentions the main driver and energy source of the ritual is the complex interplay of human suffering punctuated by the gentle exhalation of the last breath of death from prisoners held beneath the palace services within the catacombs. Every character in this thing is batshit in terms of, like, modern sensibilities. I get that this takes place roughly 1,000 years ago, but I think... One of the things that happens when we do historical games is we either take modern sensibilities and kind of project it back or we deal with like archetypes and stereotypes and just being conflated with it. It's like, no, no, they're basically constantly torturing children for this ritual to work. You're like, oh, okay. Maybe I don't want to play Dark Ages Mage. Maybe I want to go back to the game where we all deal with our peasant turd farmers. Again, and maybe we spend our resources to build a house in Wales out of stone. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm glad it existed. It was kind of fun, but I have no idea how I would how I would use this at all because I'm not running it. And as you mentioned, one of my favorite things is if the ritual goes off, kind of, like if somebody messes it up, it's like at first Frederick II is beaming with power and looks fun and healthy until everyone realizes that something is going wrong. And I'm like, Oh, this is what happens when you get pizza from that pizza place where you're like, should this place be open? Are there health department violations? You're like, Oh, this pizza is good. And the 30 seconds later, you're like, Oh, this was a poor choice, but writ large. And then you explode and turn into a Marauder. Give me the character sheet. Then if my characters are going to do it like that, that would have been a justification. If we just got a couple of pages of some of these demons or what this Marauder is going to be like, Cause like Marauders aren't established as an element in the setting, really in dark ages. Like we haven't really gotten much information on what they are, or how they work. So everything else is different across time. Give me a little bit of information. I, I want a couple more pages. I don't feel as if this is entirely applicable. It's a fun read. I'll give them that. It held my attention kind of in the same way of like, uh, as someone explaining how they had to cross the desert, like on their knees after they got hit by a bus or something is compelling. You need to know how it ends. Like it's compelling, like a car crash. So yeah, those are my thoughts on darkening sky. Adam? No.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a lot of the published mage stories, you read through it, and you're like scratching your head. It's like, why did why did they do that? What do they mean by this? Is this going to got work? a ritual
1: to stop? We, <laughs> <laughs> so I need to do a story on how sorcerers crusade, you have to stop a ritual to prevent the Welsh from building a stone house because everything is cold, and I will have brought together all of mage and all editions into one thing. Yeah, I will bet they do have a few trees in Wales, you know, somewhere. Yeah,
0: hit, <laughs> the hit, last tree behind in Wales, the stone that will house. Be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it, too. And if you leave a, me- a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at MageThePodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. It, we have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search, for, you search on YouTube for Mage the Podcast, all lowercase, don't sweat the colon, you'll find us. We're also on Mastodon. The link is in the show notes notes uh, this episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers and we do appreciate them Terry
1: can you share the names I will be glad to Oracle Sean Gallagher Oracle Benjamin Bendelow Oracle Buck Gregory Oracle Christopher Phillips Oracle Guy Conan Stewart Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Puka G, Oracle Neil Patterson Oracle Jay Widener Oracle McHale Oracle the crew of Erebus Archmaster Andrew Andelstein Archmaster Brad of the Blue Archmaster Dan Svensson Archmaster Derek Semsek Archmaster Morgan Iran, Archmaster Patrick McNamara, Alex, Alexia, Anders S, Anon, Benderfi, Birdo, Blaise Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Sin Shattis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Swink, Fragerock, George Laura, Eable, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jason Vines, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Joel and Andes, Lawson Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Henner, Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klaimanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robartha Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H. Ryan Kennedy, Samuel Tobin, Schnobelta Krieger, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. It kinda sounded like I had a small stroke in the middle of that one, and I'm not entirely sure why, but thank you everyone for your support. If you
0: would like to become an executive producer for Amaze the Podcast, it would help us keep uh, producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time,
1: truth until paradox, baby. And remember, guards are a great asset. They can watch over the characters while they sleep, especially important for K-9. They guard the group interests when they are away, or in a worst case scenario, warn the group about intruders, and buy a moment or two with their very lives. Which is important to note that in the world of darkness, guards don't actually guard anything. They scream and then die. Good luck with that. Go change reality especially in Wales, where you apparently need more trees. Bye.